Hi and welcome to Healthy Dose. I'm Shreya Shivastav, your host for this episode. I am a research fellow at Vidhi Center for Legal Policy. Healthy Dose is a podcast on health law and policy. Season 1 of our podcast tracks the journey of a vaccine from the lab to the people in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. For the first episode of our podcast series Healthy Dose, we had a conversation with Dr. Neelima Sheet Sagar, former chair clinical pharmacology at the Indian Council of Medical Research New Delhi, and with Dr. Dhwani Mehta, lead health and co-founder of Vidhi Center for Legal Policy, to discuss how scientists and regulators respond to the need of developing a safe and effective vaccine in the face of a raging global pandemic. so if you ask me how's the life uh, yeah well uh, you know there is a lot of uh, it's like pleasures and pangs as we may call it so the pleasure is that you feel uh, happy that you're in some way serving the society and in some way helping the patients by bringing in things uh, which are useful for uh, taking care of their diseases helping them to control eliminate diseases it's also like never a dull day because in a scientist life something new is always happening and uh, now in covid time it is happening every second the pace of science and work has outstripped any imaginable uh, work in the past but it's always been uh, you know very uh, big challenge and also uh, very uh, uh, interesting uh, work but what are the pangs the pangs are sometimes you know it's not always that a new drug that you're working on uh, succeeds sometimes it doesn't uh, sometimes you expect it to do something but it doesn't do that and then you have to go back and go back to the drawing board as we say and see what went wrong why did it not work this was dr neelima sheet sagar speaking about the pleasures and pangs of a pharmaceutical scientist's life Have you ever participated in a lemon and spoon race? If you run fast, you drop the lemon. If you are slow, you lose the race. It is all about maintaining that perfect balance between speed and safety while reaching the finish line, all while maintaining your own footing. You must be wondering why am I speaking about a lemon and spoon race in a podcast on vaccine development? Indian scientists and regulatory authorities have confronted a similar challenge while scientists have been dealing with the challenge of creating a safe and effective vaccine against covid-19 in record time regulatory authorities have been devising speedy ways to test and approve these vaccines the challenge has been to essentially balance speed with safety like it is in a lemon and spoon race In India the breakthrough appears to have arrived with the approval of two vaccines covid shield and covaxin Recently through interim data from phase 3 trials covaxin is reported to have 81% efficacy But what does this number mean What should lay persons understand by the safety and efficacy of a vaccine How have scientists and regulators balanced these two aspects alongside the need for swift development of a vaccine under the onslaught of a global pandemic let's begin at the starting line when does the starter gun go off in this lemon and spoon race when do scientists pharma companies and nations start thinking about making a vaccine we spoke to dr sheet sagar about this 
we're talking about uh, preventing a disease from happening when we talk about vaccine it's like preventing something most of the vaccines are like that there are few which are for treatment but most vaccines are for preventing a disease so uh, when we talk of therefore preventing a disease we have to consider what is the chance of getting that disease so what is the risk of getting the disease and then what happens when you get the disease uh, we all get common cold every now and then so there is a risk of getting something as simple as common cold and we try to do something to avoid it but there are some diseases which are not so simple they can kill you you can die of the disease so clearly the risk of the disease is huge so when you have something to uh, prevent that you can probably take a bit bigger risk so it's like uh, you know you can't uh, use a knife to uh, kill a fly so what are you using to uh, prevent what disease is uh, what decides the risk and the benefit as you said dr sheet sagar earlier spoke about the risks and benefits associated with a vaccine the two terms that have become synonymous with risks and benefit over the last year are safety and efficacy one could say that vaccination was in fact developed as a safer alternative to variolation variolation was a process where fluid from an infected area of a smallpox patient would be transferred to a healthy individual with the hope of gaining a much milder infection and immunity from a major lethal smallpox infection today safety and efficacy of a vaccine are tested through the first three phases of clinical trials how should non scientists make sense of these terms in their modern context here's what dr sheer sagar had to say a lot of basic science goes into developing a vaccine uh, we learn from past experiences starting from maybe edward jenner who got his smallpox vaccine somewhere around 1800 or 1796 or so also a uh, number of vaccine prototypes are developed it's not that you just hit upon the right bang there here's the vaccine and go ahead now no there are lots of little 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 changes that are made to keep on seeing which is better which is safer which is better safer so on so on so when it appears more or less okay that here we have a probable vaccine which is likely to be beneficial then it goes through uh, you know animal testing you try to give them the same way as will happen in human so you give the vaccine you treat them with the vaccine and then give them the virus and see if they are protected now the trouble is that animals are different than humans so the virus doesn't produce in the animal the same effect as in human even when you are pretty sure that the vaccine that is developed up to this stage is safe and effective in preventing the virus induced disease in animal there is a extent of unsurety here so safety means testing for any potential harmful effects that the vaccine might have on the human body this constitutes phase 1 of most clinical trials what happens in phase 2 so because you can't infect a person with the infecting organism to test for the effect of the vaccine 
you need surrogate marker. What's a surrogate marker? That's the antibody. So if there is an antibody which acts against that virus, uh, then that could indicate yeah, likely that this particular vaccine will be effective. So you give the vaccine and then you test if the participant has developed the antibodies or not. Correct. So that gives you an idea of some sort of an idea that the vaccine is likely to be effective. Okay. So that is what is called as phase two. Dr. Sheet Sagar spoke about the importance of identification of surrogate markers in modern clinical research. The earliest reference to surrogate markers, that is antibodies, goes back to late 1890 to the works of Emil von Bering and Dr. Kita Sato in treating diphtheria in animals. Clearly, we are all very indebted to the scientific developments of the past. Coming to the present, in phase two of the clinical trial, antibodies help researchers understand the preliminary indications of the efficacy of the vaccine. Dr. Sheer Sagar explains, how a more robust understanding of efficacy is established in phase 3. And what is phase 3 in vaccine? That's something a big challenge, okay? Because here we are really trying to see that when you vaccinate a person, he doesn't develop the infection or disease. Now, for able to test that, we have to have a natural infection going around, correct? as is happening with COVID. So this is the phase three. That is, you give to a large number of people the vaccine and to a large number of people the placebo. And then you follow them up for two months, three months and see whether they get the infection or not. Now you can imagine that's a very complex process. If I look at the data from, let's say, Mumbai, uh, in of uh, July, August, uh, we could see that maybe there were about uh, 500 people per lakh population who were getting infected. So if I have to take this Mumbai example forward, uh, let's say we had at that time five people out of 1,000 were getting it and say 50 out of 10,000 were getting it. Okay, 50 out of 10,000. So if the placebo people had 50 patient subjects out of 10,000 getting the infection and your vaccine group in that group, five get it, then that's a 90% reduction in the infection rate. Yeah. So that's the 90% efficacy. Okay. Lot of science goes into developing these vaccines. Lot of science. Right. Unimaginable amount of science and experience goes in trying to make it as safe as possible. If the science around safety and efficacy is the precious lemon that must be steered safely through the race to produce a vaccine, the regulatory framework is the spoon on which it relies. This spoon must be sturdy and inspire confidence. The history of regulation of vaccines and of clinical trials is not pretty. Formal regulation of vaccines began as a response to a tragedy associated with vaccines in the US in 1901, wherein 13 children died due to receiving contaminated antitoxin. 
the first modern regulation pertaining to clinical trials the nuremberg code was triggered as a response to inhuman human experimentation in nazi germany in this context the indian regulatory framework may have got off onto a shaky start dr dhwani mehta explains why this may have happened delving into the history of colonial laws clinical trials in india are governed by secondary legislation in the form of the new drugs and clinical trials rules 2019 rather than by primary legislation so it might surprise people to know this but the parent act which is the drugs and cosmetics act 1940 under which these 2019 rules were enacted doesn't mention the term clinical trials anywhere at all now this is not surprising the act was passed in colonial india just as world war 2 had got underway and the global impetus for ethical guidelines for clinical research came ultimately from the uncovering of barbaric experiments on humans that were carried out by nazi doctors who were pursuing racial hygiene now india's parent drug legislation was enacted before all this now that doesn't mean that it couldn't or shouldn't have been updated since then but it partially explains why we don't see any mention of as important an issue as clinical trials anywhere in the actual act so it wasn't until 1988 that part 10a was added to the drugs and cosmetics rules 1945 to introduce a whole chapter related to the import and manufacture of new drugs for clinical trials or marketing so until 2019 it was this part 10a which along with schedule y made up the regulatory framework on clinical trials in india and it stayed in force until the 2019 rules that i mentioned earlier india seems to have taken a while to get out of the starting blocks as far as regulations around clinical trials are concerned dhwani goes on to explain what lies at the heart of these regulations apart from the science what is the legal obligation that requires clinical trials to be conducted what steps must be taken before conducting such trials so there is a provision uh, in in the regulatory framework that states that no new drug may be imported or manufactured except in accordance with the provisions of the drugs and cosmetics act and the 2019 rules and this in turn means that any application for the import or manufacture of a new drug must typically be accompanied by data that's generated during clinical trials so the kind of data that must be generated and whether the clinical trial should be local that means conducted in india or not depends on the nature of that new drug so this is the crux of the obligation and then the 2019 rules laid down that uh, clinical trials cannot be conducted without two kinds of approvals so one you need permission from the central licensing authority which again as i said is the drugs controller general of india and then the clinical trial protocol itself must have been approved by an ethics committee that is registered in accordance with these rules then the rules provide a lot of detail about um the general principles that must be observed in the conduct of clinical trials In India regulatory processes are not synonymous with speed do the rules of the race change during a public health emergency like the current pandemic dhwani explains the process of accelerated approval for new drugs in such situations right so ordinarily um vaccines and drugs or i mean all new drugs are to be approved only after 
having submitted uh, a, you know da clinical data from different phases of clinical trials and again the the requirements for this are all detailed in the 2019 rules um quite often um when when the drug is discovered in india or uh, you know a molecule is developed in india um this this the, the requirement is also that local clinical trials must be conducted in india and data from that must be submitted to the licensing authority um to allow uh, for approval the question you asked is interesting because the clinical trial rules themselves are concerned primarily with the information that's required to be submitted in order to gain uh, approval and not necessarily with the conditions of the of of accelerated approval itself so just to give you uh, i mean to to simplify this and to to tell you what i mean by this is that the 2019 rules do provide for instances in which um data may be omitted or abbreviated or deferred so in, in such instances approval may be granted on the basis of less rigorous data than would otherwise have been the case and confusingly the 2019 rules provide for this in a variety of different scenarios so but for accelerated approval it it is it, the, the rules essentially state that it can be allowed for a new drug for a disease taking into account the severity rarity or prevalence um, of the disease as well as the availability of alternative adequate alternative treatments however there are some conditions attached to this so it can be um, you know you can provide this kind of accelerated approval only when there is a, a prima facie case that's made out that the product for which you are seeking approval is uh, likely to be of meaningful therapeutic benefit over existing treatment now what does this uh, what does this mean um so if you look at um, if you look at the provision in the in the new drugs and clinical trials rules this essentially requires that um The, the the drug in question must demonstrate remarkable efficacy uh with a defined dose in the second phase of uh, the clinical trial for the drug in such cases the central licensing authority which otherwise usually waits for phase 3 data before it grants approval may grant approval even on the basis of phase 2 clinical trial data so the indian regulatory framework does allow for an accelerated approval process that can provide much needed speed in the race however rather than accelerated approval the phrase that we heard most frequently in the context of the approval of covid shield and covaxin was restricted emergency use we asked dhwani what this phrase meant and why there was confusion surrounding it now we know from the orders passed by the uh, you know the drug controller general of india as well as the um, the minutes of the subject expert committees that uh, approved these two vaccines covishield and covaxin that what has been approved is restricted emergency use and uh, for covishield and for covaxin restricted emergency use as an abundant precaution in the public interest in clinical trial mode now again none of these terms are defined anywhere in the regulatory framework so 
one would imagine that restricted emergency use would be defined by specific reference to you know either the number of doses that are made available or the target populations that they are supposed to be made available to or um you know or, or other conditions that are attached to the use of these vaccines but uh you know there are no details as far as i can make out in the approvals granted to these two vaccines as far as any of these conditions is concerned and just to for example contrast this with say um you know authorization that was granted to uh you know the pfizer vaccine under uh, by the uk uh, medicines and health products uh, healthcare products regulatory agency the uk mhra says that temporary authorization permits the supply of identified batches of you know this vaccine so they have they have in mind the specific quantity of the product that is supposed to be made available and they also very specifically state that the authorization is not a marketing authorization now again there's very little clarity on this in the indian context as in because the indian framework essentially allows approval of a vaccine or a new drug or whatever it is either for import or for manufacturing or for you know compassionate use for individual cases now it's it's clear that it's not this uh, in in the context of covishield and vaccine we know that it's not compassionate use it's not being provided to a very small number of individuals in fact now it's being rolled out all across the country i mean the status of the authorization that has been given to covishield and covaxin is likely to change in light of the uh, announcements that the government has made about uh, allowing a widespread rollout because none of these none of this i mean this kind of rollout doesn't seem compatible at all with uh, restricted emergency use just as the term restricted emergency use created confusion so did the use of the phrase clinical trial mode as the approval was granted for the use of covaxin only in clinical trial mode this phrase appears to change the rules of the race altogether because it's never been used before in the context of a vaccine how should it be understood by people who are being administered the vaccine in clinical trial mode i was part of you know the icmr ethics committee that was required to try and understand what uh, what clinical trial mode means and how it should be incorporated in the rollout and and of course you know we tried to interpret it in a way that uh, allows for most safeguards that exist during ordinary clinical trials to be applied even to the rollout of uh, covaxin with i think the most important safeguard being the fact that recipients potential recipients or beneficiaries of the vaccine are informed about the about its regulatory status about the risks associated with it and are essentially administered informed consent in the same way as they would be in a clinical trial it's something that we've developed by applying existing principles not because a provision like this already exists in the regulatory framework it seems then that the regulatory framework surrounding the approval of vaccines may be lacking the desirable sturdiness for such a precarious lemon and spoon race without a fitting spoon it becomes even more important that the lemon is just right science has to work doubly harder to reassure people about the safety and efficacy of vaccines we asked dr sheer sagar how scientists respond to such public anxiety i think what i would like to say is that uh, 
uh, that uh, you know last two centuries the importance of uh, immunization has shown that this is one of the uh, very good way of preventing infectious diseases there have been a situation where you know because of uh, wrong information going around people have not taken vaccine not immunized their children and they have ended up in having uh, measles and such infection although these are completely preventable diseases so people should ask question should ask for information but uh, they must they should take vaccines they must take the immunization a lot of precaution get taken they must be alert on things definitely no doubt but uh, to say that oh i don't don't trust vaccine so i won't take it or uh, you know i am anyway immune i won't take it so people should understand it's not easy to understand all the science but when we have uh, you know experts uh, guiding the government i think we have good reason to think that the guidance they are giving is uh, appropriate one can have the perfect lemon by picking the best experts and trusting them but what do we need to make a better spoon as a lawyer working on health law and policy we asked twenty what changes she thought were needed in the indian regulatory framework to prepare better for the next public health emergency i'll begin with my one pet peeve which is i've always maintained that clinical trial regulation in india deserves a primary statute that sets out certain key rights and obligations for uh, participants as well as you know sponsors and investigators so we do have a comprehensive code now in the form of the 2019 rules but none of this is linked to a solid provision in the parent statute so you know wh- one consequence of this is that the penalties for violating uh, the provisions of the clinical trials rules 2019 are uh, are minimal and in fact it's not linked to a specific offense under the drugs and cosmetics act either and this allows for a lax sort of regulatory atmosphere so when we were drafting these regulations we didn't specifically think about uh, how we would want to regulate products like this during the time of an epidemic or a pandemic or other public health emergency and as we're seeing with covid-19 now there are there are all kinds of issues that that do crop up as in how, to what extent can you waive uh, regulatory requirements to what extent you should you provide post trial access what are the other suspensions in your you know uh, normal regulatory processes that might be required then we haven't applied our mind to this and therefore now we're sort of making things up on the fly as we go along and that's created a lot of uncertainty and confusion so you know to prepare for the next pandemic it's it might be useful to think about um how these regulatory requirements can be appropriately modified in the context of a public health emergency like this one as the existing regulatory framework has been found inadequate in coping with challenges posed by the current pandemic it becomes all the more important for regulatory bodies to be transparent in order to inspire public confidence 
When the Drug Controller General of India never explained what clinical trial mode means, as Dhwani explained earlier, Covaxin's approval has now been amended from clinical trial mode to restricted use in emergency situations in public interest. It says that vaccine recipients are now not required to read the fact sheet, sign the consent forms, and submit adverse events reports like earlier. This makes us wonder if these were the conditions for clinical trial mode, they should have been explained earlier. We are getting some clarity on it only now when it no longer exists. In some sense, the controversy around regulatory approvals of vaccines has highlighted the opacity and transparency with which regulatory bodies can function and makes us think of ways in which that can be addressed. After all, races don't happen in silos. At the heart of any race is the question of ethics, transparency, and accountability. This brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you all for tuning in. I'm extremely excited to share that we are going to have Dr. Anand Bhan, an eminent bioethicist, on the next episode of Healthy Dose, which will be hosted by my co-host Yogni Oak. They will be discussing the ethical issues centered around vaccination and the pandemic in general. Do tune in. We are on SoundCloud and Spotify as Vidhi Center for Legal Policies podcast. You can also listen to us on Google Podcast or iTunes. <laughs>